Colossians 2 and verse 13 is where we'll be studying this morning and looking forward to the text that teaches us, wow, we have not just a partial salvation, not just a partial forgiveness even, we have a full and complete salvation, redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is sufficient for us. It is sufficient for us to stand firm against folks who would say, oh, you need something different. You need something more. You need something uh, a little bit uh, uh, in addition to. And we'll even see in connection with this a, a relation to Gentiles. It seems like many in the Colossian church or the church in Colossae were Gentile, which means not Jewish, not descendant, physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet had come to Christ had come to Messiah and by faith received the same promises, the same benefits as the children of Israel. Not fully, they're grafted in and we could talk more about this, but in terms of salvation, in terms of forgiveness of sins, Jew and Gentile alike have the same opportunity, the same access to God the Father. Now Paul in this passage in Colossians 2 is couching, not couching, but he's presenting this wonderful doctrine of salvation, of of, salvation. soteriology, we would call it, doctrine of salvation, uh, and Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Who is this guy? Who is this wonderful Savior? He is presenting in the context of watch out for those who would try to lead you astray. He he starts that in the beginning, verse 8, we'll read it here. But then after this, in verse 16, he says, so don't let anyone look down on you. Don't let anyone disregard you or say that you need to do these things or or to to add to these things, especially uh, some, some various restrictions and and so forth. He says, no, you don't need to do that. You have a complete salvation in Christ. So he says in verse 8, I'll read down through verse 15. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is head over rule, all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt which... Uh, of, of consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. We have been looking carefully at these verses up through verse 12 last time, and the union that we have in Christ. We have been buried with him, and we are also raised up with Christ. Now, in these next few verses, 13, 14, and 15, he kind of comes at it from another perspective, and he shifts the ideas now such that he says, you being dead in your transgressions, he says you were dead back in terms of the circumcision, you died in Christ, you died to the flesh, and so forth. But he uses kind of a different uh, approach to these same truths, death, burial, and resurrection, but he presents it in a way of salvation being accomplished. He was he was talking about justification there, and now he's talking about that same thing from a little bit different perspective. It's kind of hard to say, but it, he's he's just repeating it from from an, another way to to consider this. And he says, "You were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh," whereas we looked at it in verse eleven, I think it was, where he said the. Uh, the circumcision which you have received, not made by hands, not 
the removal of the flesh, or it's actually the removal of the entire body of the flesh, and it's the circumcision of Christ. But here, when he's talking about circumcision, he's actually, I think, talking about the physical act, what, what the Jews would do, uh, beginning from Abraham back in, uh, I think it was Genesis 15, was the first, first circumcision time, and of course it was legislated as part of the Mosaic Law. Here, he's talking about circumcision being the actual act for, for male, uh, the foreskin of the male organ to be cut off. And he says this is the thing that's going on as a distinction between Jew and Gentile, which is why we can interpret or understand that the church in Colossae, if it wasn't predominant Gentile, it was, at least many of those in the church in Colossae were Gentile, because he focuses on that. I mean, if there's any issue that would distinguish between Jew and Gentile, it is this issue of circumcision. And we talked about that in our in our text of, of the earlier verse. But here he identifies, uh, you you were dead, you Gentiles, you had no hope. We'll read a parallel passage in Ephesians. It says, uh, you guys were in a, in a heap of trouble, and there was no opportunity for you. Whereas the Jews, he would say, uh, is it Romans 3? He says, what advantage has the Jew then? Well, it's Romans 9 also, but all throughout Romans, he's talking about the contrast between Jew and Gentile. Here he is saying, you Gentiles were just like the Jews. In fact, the salvation we have is is as much yours as it is ours, Paul being a Jewish believer, a believer in, in Christ. Well, if that didn't befuddle you too much, we'll take our time going through this. He says, and you, or you even, it's not in addition, we're not saying, well, us Jews are this way, but even you guys, even you are part of this process, even you Gentiles, those who are able to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that you are the ones who were dead. You, in a former situation of life, you were dead. Now, he's not talking about a physical death. He's actually talking now about a spiritual death, which before he was talking about a, a, a physical resurrection. But now he's talking about a spiritual death, a uh, being spiritually dead. He describes it in this way, uh, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. To be dead spiritually is to be alive, your body's functioning, you're still able to communicate and talk and do different things, but spiritually you are dead. One person described it this way, what does it mean to be spiritually dead or dead in our sins? He says, uh, unbelievers exist in the sphere or realm of spiritual death. To be spiritually dead means to be devoid of any sense, sensibility, you know, being able to feel things, unable to respond to spiritual, to spiritual stimuli, just as to be physically dead means to be unable to respond to physical stimuli. It is to be so locked in sin's grasp that one is unable to respond to God. The Bible and spiritual truth make no sense to one in such a state. Those who are spiritually dead are dominated by the world, the flesh, and Satan, and possess no spiritual eternal life. It's not like that old movie that talked about, you know, dead, mostly dead, or all dead, or whatever they said there. No, if you are spiritually dead, you there's no connection between you and God. There is judgment, there's wrath, there's the only expectation that your spiritual death will then result in your physical death, because the wages of sin is death, both physically, but also spiritually. And even a resurrection for an unbeliever is a resurrection unto eternal death, a separation from God. When I mean, isn't it striking when you read in Genesis 2 and then Genesis 3, Genesis 2, God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die, or you shall dyingly die. There's no doubt about it. And then we read, they did eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then God said, judgment upon childbearing. Well, 
she probably wasn't even pregnant at the time. How does this work? And you're going to work the field. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought we were supposed to die right here. Well, what happened to Adam and Eve is they did. They were separated. Remember, they had to. Be, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were aware of their sin, their shame. They were not able to walk in the cool of the day and talk, you know, face to face with God anymore. There was a spiritual separation, and Adam and Eve, hopefully, uh, trusted in that promise of Genesis three fifteen and the other promises that they didn't die physically that day, but that God would raise up from the seed of woman one who would deliver them. And so, in so much, in so far, rather, as their son Abel trusted in that, you can read in Genesis four about that that conflict between Cain and Abel, and how Abel's sacrifice was pleasing because Abel's included what sacrifice of blood. Somebody died to cover his his uh, to pay for his uh, sacrifice, but that. Indication is, okay, we're not just talking about a physical death because Adam and Eve did not physically die on that day where they eat, but there was a spiritual effect upon their lives and continued until they were, as he says uh, here in this verse, you were made alive together with Christ. Anybody from the Old Testament time to the present time, the only life that they have is not through the sacrifices, not through uh, their devotion to God, their piety. It is through what Christ has done. Whether looking forward to it, Abraham, Jesus said, John 8, I think it is, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Abraham put his faith in Christ. And we, looking back, historically speaking, put our faith in Christ. It's all what Christ has done. And so Paul makes a big deal about this reality of what Christ has done. You being dead. Now, it was a state, a condition for all people born into this world. This, this issue of sin is not just a Jewish problem or just a Gentile problem. It's anybody born into the world has this issue of sin and issue of spiritual death. Uh, this He says it in this way, you were dead in your transgressions. There are many words in the, in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, for sin, or here it's transgression. There are many uh, presentations of it, many depictions, many images that relate to it. Uh, there are, I don't know, a dozen, more than a dozen different ways that we could talk about it. In fact, more than a dozen, because there are two different main categories. If you if you take, like in the at the end of Psalm 19, David identifies a couple different sins, uh, categories of sin. But he says there are some unintentional sins that we do. We're, we're just ignorant. We didn't know that we're not supposed to do this, or we didn't know that we were supposed to do this. We just, we didn't know. Or there's inattention, just carelessness. So I didn't, I didn't mean not to do it. I just was not attentive. So there might be, we'll give the benefit of the doubt, perhaps, unintentional sins. But even so, it's a sin. It's a violation of God's law. And so you're guilty. So it's not like, well, I didn't mean to. Well, you did. And so you need to pay the, the fine. But then this, this uh, issue of intentional or willful or Psalm 19, verse 14, I think, says a high-handed, no, verse 13 says, high-handed sin, you know, keep back your servant from presumptuous or high-handed sin. You know, we're just violently rebelling against God. And the result of sin or the action of sin is to, uh, to incur a debt which must be paid, a fine that must be paid. Sin is a missing of the mark. You've heard this, I'm sure, uh, sin, you know, if you fire a, a, a bullet or an arrow at a, a target and you miss it, well, that's sin. How can that be sinful? Well, it's the same thing when you're firing at something, you're firing, you're aiming for God's law to be obedient to it, and you missed it. Well, that's what sin is, missing the mark. Sin is a transgression. It is, as this word here, transgression is uh, knowing, as Jesus says elsewhere, knowing the good you ought to do and you don't do it. That's sin. 
It is overstepping your bounds. It is pushing the boundaries. Uh, it is uh, uh, impropriety, just doing things that are not right. It is walking in violation of a principle of conduct. Walking in, I mean, we, we said, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it good. There's no, no, you don't do it. It is walking beside the proper path. You would think, oh, well, it's a parallel path. I can get there just the same. Think of, well, Abraham did that with the one lady and had the son Ishmael, and that wasn't a good thing. God worked it well, and he redeemed and, and saved and, and everything, but choosing a parallel path with a, a clear command and promise of God is not the way to do. Go with God's, God's plan. Walk on that path, not a parallel path. Sin is hostility toward God. It is to be at enmity. We've seen this in Colossians. To be a, a, you know, a stage of war against God. It is disobedience. It is rebellion to God's will. It is lawlessness. It's a defiance of God's good and, and perfect law. It is a violation of God's character because God is holy. He is immortal. He is uh, moral. I mean, every, all morality, all ethics come from God. He is righteousness embodied. He is uh, uh, reverent. He is all these wonderful things. And sin is a violation of those things. Sin is failing to do the good, the good that we know we ought to do. Sin is a also violates our conscience. It, we, our conscience is that which helps us to know whether our behavior is good or whether it's bad. And our conscience helps us to to evaluate our behavior in that way. Also, a couple other aspects of sin. It is treacherous. It's a traitorous, treasonous act for us to, us who are created in God's image, and to say, well, I'm going to use that for things that are not pleasing to God. That is sin. That is wickedness. And it resorts to falsehood or error or lies or trickery and deceit. It's a problem. Sin is a problem. Again, we look at the idea that we see the universality of sin, which is to say everybody sins. And that, not, that should not be an excuse. Well, everybody does it. Well, everybody's going to hell then. You want to be one of those? Acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, run to Christ, and your sins can be covered. You, everybody sins. Well, yes, that's not a comfort. Everybody is in the same boat. What do you want to do? You, am I a bad person? Yes, you are. But you can be righteous. You can become righteous in Christ. This is, uh, as Christ would say, the most serious problem facing humanity. The issue is not, oh, these Romans are so oppressive to me. They're taking so much taxes. And, and that's the least of your concerns, honey. We need Savior. We need a Savior. We need somebody to represent us before God. Not the priests. They can't do it. The blood of, of goats and calves and all these things cannot cover sin. We need Christ. We need that wonderful, perfect substitute who would do it. Uh, Nobody's perfect. Well, that's not an excuse either. Right? Nobody's perfect. But nobody is a, a, apart from the condemnation of God for sinners. We all need God to forgive us. We all need them to forgive one another. There are some implications of sin. What he says, being dead in your transgressions, sin kills. Sin executes people. The effect or impact of sin, what sin does in our lives, well, it, it tantalizes us. I mean, the transgressions, why would we, why would we willingly, knowingly cross God's boundaries if we didn't think there's something on the other side that was delicious, delightful, something that promises us life, that God's, God's commands over here, oh, what a burden. What, I mean, we have to do this that, and the other thing. If I just go this way, I'll have life. That's what Satan promises, but he lies. He's a tricker, tricker, trickster. Deceiver, he is, uh, uh, no, he tantalizes, he promises satisfaction, satisfaction, but sin deceives, 
and it satisfies maybe for just a short time. Do you read that passage about Esau who traded his birthright and his blessing for one meal? He set his whole life on one meal. Guess what happened six or eight hours later? He's hungry again. That's what sin does. We think, oh, I can get this and I'll be happy. Well, for maybe a short while, but sin deceives. Sin darkens the mind. This, when he says you were dead in your transgressions, yeah, sin darkens the mind. We think irrationally. Not, now, there's some brilliant unbelievers, but they are uh, operating out of a darkened mind. It's kind of like if that clock, which we have so many troubles with, I do anyway, uh, if that clock were stopped right now, it would be right twice a day, right? Being an analog do- clock on with uh, with uh, arms, uh, it would be right twice a day. Well, unbelievers can be right in certain respects, but when you come down to the real issues, what is the real issue? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, or as we read in Colossians 2, in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. So if you don't honor God, if you don't fear God, if you don't revere his word, you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you might be right on some things. You might have good insight into what's going on. But the real stuff of the business, the real meat of the business is Christ and God. And unbelievers have no relation to that. They make false interpretations and they make excuses. They justify their ignorance. Uh, Romans 1 would, would talk about that. Sin affects the memory even. Being dead in your transgressions affects our memory. We are very selective in remembering certain things. Reminds me of the, of the argument different people have. The husband, it was a husband and wife, would say, well, you know, whenever I, we start arguing, she gets historical. And you say, what do you mean hysterical? No, historical. She starts reciting all the things that I've done bad. Well, Memory can be selective in terms of what we, we do, and we don't remember. I mean, isn't, wasn't that the fault of the judges? They didn't remember what God had done, all the good works that God had done to save them, to bring them out of Egypt and, and establish them in the land. We don't remember uh, the things properly. We'll see in Colossians 3 that sin results in greed, which is idolatry. It is to worship and serve something that is, is contrary. It's, it gets in the place of God. Sin affects our consciences. Being dead in our transgressions, we, our, our ability to discern right and wrong is tainted by our false understanding of what is right and wrong. Romans 3, one uh, thirty two, I think it is, says that they and these unbelievers engage in evil deeds and they give hearty approval to those who engage in the same thing. It's just wicked. It's a vicious cycle or circle of a conscience that is so defiled or... Um, uh, it just doesn't function properly. And that is the result of sin, being dead in our transgressions. It pervades every aspect of your life, thinking and feeling and wanting and doing. Even the physical processes of our bodies are affected by sin. Where does death come from? Where does sickness come from? It comes from uh, sin. Sin affects relationships. Relationship with God, it affects relationships with other people. It uh, takes captive. We're talking about don't let anyone take you captive through this stuff, but only through Christ. Well, sin takes captive the will and that we are inclined to do evil and we make decisions to carry out those evil desires. And what, how, what kind of foolishness is it to know the good we ought to do and then willingly choose the opposite? That is just, might not be you, but that's me. We need a savior. I need a savior so that I would forsake the good, consider myself dead to those things and alive to God in righteousness. Sin leads to suffering, it leads to disease, it leads to death. 
uh, separates us from God and others. It brings shame and guilt. And the soul that sins, the scripture says, shall surely die. It's not a good thing. But here, there's hope. Colossians 2.13 says, you were dead. You being dead in your transgressions. So uh, the, the activity of your sinfulness and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, you know, one thing about circumcision is you don't willingly choose it. It's done something. It is something done to you. It was eight year, eight day old uh, baby boy, Jewish boys that would be circumcised, and he says, "The uncircumcision of flesh." You didn't have a choice in that, but tell you what, it separates from you from God. This parallel passage in Ephesians chapter two. You might want to turn there. It's just a, a brief passage where he is uh, saying very similar things to what he's saying here. In fact, really the only. There might be one other place where he talks about a spiritual death. Uh, Ephesians 2 and Colossians uh, 2 and then Colossians 3 talks about a spiritual death. It's pictured in various other places. And there's one other place I'll mention. But Ephesians 2 uh, says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. You, it wasn't just your condition. You practiced this stuff. You worked it out in, your daily cor- in the daily uh, life. You were walking according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formally conduct ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And here, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and so forth. We read all that. But it says, being... uh, us being dead, when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with him. And he goes on and describes this uh, in verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, so the Gentiles versus the, the Jewish uh, people, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, and human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ. Now think of yourself in this way. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile, what characterizes a Gentile? without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. Six negative strikes against us, that us being Gentiles, whereas the Jews at least had some benefit of these things, Gentiles had no connection to these things. You were without Christ. You had no. Why would a, a Jewish Messiah come and help you? Well, because God promised that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles as well, to the nations, that they were alienated. We were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. The citizenship of Israel was based on heredity or parentage. Are you a descendant, physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Can you prove it? Which tribe are you from? Show me your lineage. Show me who your daddy was. I want to know names. I want, don't skip a, don't skip a generation. I want to know. Can you trace your, your identity back to which tribe? Reuben, Simeon, Judah, which one? Who are you from? Well, if you can't do that, you are alienated from the citizenship of Israel. You are strangers to the covenants of promise. God didn't make any promises to you. Now, there are some, but generally speaking, the Mosaic law is not for Gentiles. And the the connection that that you could have through that, well, you have to to become a Jewish uh, person. Now, not ethnically, but a, a proselyte, as it's called. And it says, having no hope. I mean, where are you going to turn? You can't turn to the Jewish Messiah, to the Jewish Yahweh. Not just he's not Jewish Yahweh; he's God in heaven over all nations. But if if you don't have any relationship to him, where's your hope? You have no hope, and you are without God. 
because God works through his people. He works through the, the ways that he had established. And you want, as a Gentile, you want to come, we have to come through the Jewish nation. Now, of course, we come through the Jewish Messiah. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. The temple the temple is going away. But I am the one. I am your access to the Father. And it says, you are in the world. We are characterized by everything that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the condemnation. Or, part, you know, under the, the uh, Ephesians 2 talked about the prince of the power of the air. We're under his domination, his, his influence, and so forth. Well, to be spiritually dead is that, to be captive in all those, all those different things. There's one other aspect of that spiritual death, and it includes a relational death as well. And this is what we looked at back in Luke 15. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? And the father, the forgiving father, uh, said on two different occasions, this is verse Luke 15, 24, and then also in verse 32, he says, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. Now, that son did not die. He was not resurrected. But in terms of his relationship to the father and in terms of his the son's relationship to God, in, in some respects, and we have to read into a little bit of what's going on there, but the son repented and, and came back to his father's house, which is what Jesus was portraying uh, in terms of lost, has been found. In fact, that's what the father says. He was lost and has been found. And we have to rejoice. We have to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and is alive and was lost and has been found. So there's a, a picture of what it means to be spiritually dead. And the man, Jesus there, the father, says that what was lost, what was dead, is now alive, has been found again. Well, this was a, a, a former situation, you being dead. It was a, used to be true of you, uh, or could be a, con, uh, a concession, although you were dead, he made you alive. Either way, it, it's saying this used to characterize your, your life, a spiritual death. But now he made you alive with him. The contrast is... Whereas earlier he talked about a physical resurrection, now he's talking about a spiritual resurrection. You were dead, and now he has made you spiritually alive with him. What's the result? What's the real issue that makes the difference? It's forgiveness. Having forgiven us, graciously forgiven us, all our transgressions. Now, I won't be able to fully develop it in our time this morning, so we'll have to save that last part for next time. But he goes so far to say that sin is a problem. And sin is the problem that Christ has come to redeem and, and restore and deal with, which is a burden for us then. The issue is not so much, uh, as I've mentioned before, the issue is not so much, are you out of debt? Are you, uh, you know, have uh, you saved up enough for retirement? Um, uh, are you, are you, do you have all GFCI outlets in your water areas and in your bathrooms and your kitchen? And do you have one of those new ones, uh, the Arc Fault? Circuit, you know, all the safety, all the OSHA, you know, occupational safety and health, whatever, all these kind of restrictions. Are we so concerned about that? Or is the sin issue? Are we concerned about, hey, your sin separates you? And whether you are an unbeliever, definitely there's, there's that burden. But even as believers, sin defiles, sin separates. Why would you go off and even give full vent to your anger? A foolish man does that. Hold your tongue. The Proverbs that speak so much about, um, I mentioned it to David this morning, that in a multitude of words, sin is unavoidable, but he who keeps his lips is wise. So maybe tone back how many words you say, how many words you tweet or, or post online. 
be careful what you're talking about because in a multitude of words, sin is unavoidable. There are many implications, and Colossians 3 will, will build this out so wonderfully, why we should not continue in sin because we're new creatures. We are different now. We, we can walk in newness of life. Romans 6 describes that as we've looked at in these last uh, couple of weeks as well. But this issue of sin is really our predominant thing. It's not to, to beat us over the head. Oh, you're just a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. Well, it's true, but it's not a condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But why would you continue to walk in sin? Well, Romans 6 says, well, God is gracious. Why, why not continue? God's grace is mag- magnified in my sin because there's more stuff for God to forgive. What kind of foolish reasoning is that? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? No, may it never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Sin is a problem, not just for those bunch of ruined sinners out in the world, but right here in the church. We need to deal with these things in a, in a godly fashion, not in a, in a rude fashion. You know, Galatians 6 talks about this. If you have a brother who's caught or ensnared in a sin, you seek to restore him gently, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. It's a humility. It is a concern. We're acting in love, a warning admonition. There are sins. First uh, John 5 talks about a sin that it leads to death or a sin that, that uh, results in death. Uh, he says, well, be careful of that. Or uh, he says, is it James 5, I think, where he says, he who covers, is that, which was it? First Corinthians, first, excuse me, as I consult the book. Yes, my brothers, James 5, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We need to deal with sin. Sometimes we can ignore it. Sometimes we can just forbear one another. Ephesians 4 says, put up with each other because we need to be tenderhearted and compassionate. Sometimes, as it says here, sometimes you need to confront the issue. If you see some uh, wrong behavior, some wrong words, wrong attitudes, that we don't come as as lording it over. We don't come as those who've got it all figured out. We are the perfect ones and you need to follow after me. No, even if First uh, Corinthians 11, 1 says, imitate me, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you're going to imitate anything in me, make sure it's something you see in Christ as well. And that makes all the more pressure on me to only present the things that would emulate Christ. That means in your words. What kind of words do you let out of your mouth? What kind of uh, faces do you let? I mean, sometimes there's fun and jesting, all that. But is there coarse jesting? Is there vulgarity? Uh, what kind of things do you spend time with? What are you exposing your kids to in terms of entertainment or, or books and, and videos and music and all that? Does it imitate Christ? Does it reflect him? Does it motivate people to want to uh, draw near to this beautiful Savior? Or do, does your behaviors perhaps indicate Jesus doesn't make that much difference. He's not that big a deal. Because I name the name of Christ, but I live this way, or I think this way, or I speak this way. Yeah, Christ doesn't really mean much. We don't want to be that way. We want to show the extreme power that Christ has done in our lives to change us. We were dead in our transgressions, separate from God, uncircumcision of your flesh. We who are formerly apart from God have been brought near. How ought we to live? How ought we to conduct ourselves in this time of our sojourn on this earth? Very short while we're on this earth compared to the eternity that is ours uh, ahead of us, historically speaking. We want to honor Christ. Remember, you were dead. You've been made alive together with him. What are you doing about it? 
honor the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the truth of your word, the life-changing truth of your word. Please help us to be your people. Uh, this, these are difficult and dark days, and we are so much taken and even overcome by what is going on in this world. But we pray that we would be overcome with Christ. Please help us to, as the scripture says here, to be captives of Christ, to be followers of him, to cling to him, to realize our only life is in him, our only hope is in him. The only hope that we have to give to other people is Christ. We pray that we would be motivated to share that message of hope and of glory in the Lord Jesus. Please save and sanctify. Please help us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ uh, today than we have been yesterday. Please help these this next week to be a time of wonderful spiritual growth. Uh, sometimes it's through suffering. Sometimes it's through pain. Sometimes, sometimes it is through sacrifice and opposition, and yet you are worth it. You are worthy of our lives, even to lay down our lives for you and for the sake or for the love of the brothers. We pray that we this reality of our spiritual death, but our spiritual life in Christ would motivate us to live differently, to be as lights in a very dark place. We pray with great hope and excitement uh, for your kindness and your help as we were not orphans, you haven't left us as uh, on our own. You have given us your spirit, you've given us your word, you've given us uh, the church to encourage one another. We pray that we would live up to the task which you've entrusted to us in this age, at this hour. We trust you. Pray for your goodwill to be accomplished. Amen.